0: A long time ago, my friend and I, her mom bought us a Ouija board, and it was back when we were little kids, you know, so that was, like, the time, probably the best time to get one, because we were like, this is going to be really intense, so we've got (laughs) to, we've got to mentally prepare. (laughs) So I remember we, like, dressed in all black, and we went in her closet, (laughs) and we took out the Ouija board, and her grandma had just died recently, so, oh, not her grandma, no, it was her aunt, sorry, and, uh, we were like gonna ask her aunt all these questions and then um immediately it said goodbye and then every time we tried to do it it just went to the goodbye thing like it just didn't want to talk to us and we were just like well are you moving it and I was like no are you moving it and she was like no and then I, like we couldn't get past the goodbye part like I guess she just didn't want to talk to us from her spirit realm or whatever. Maybe she, my friend just really didn't want to know, but yeah. it was pretty weird. I just remember being weirded out by it, but then again, I was like eight years old. Yeah. So. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus my dad to go yeah. to Dallas mm-hmm. for... One time, when I was little, uh, my dad eight, ran a, When I was a a little, my dad... Or a man out of the restaurant.
1: Yeah, it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm
2: Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at the stories that we tell again and again, and what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And this week we're talking about...
1: The Ouija Board.
2: And before we get any deeper into the topic... Let's take a moment to thank all of the people who have rated and reviewed on iTunes, especially b Uh We, too, would love to have a glass of wine with you sometime. And let, like, let's put it on a bucket list somewhere. I think we can probably do it. Let's see.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you're in Austin, let us know. <laughs>
2: If you haven't rated and reviewed on iTunes yet, you don't get to have any wine, so you need to do so immediately. Also, you can reach out to us on Twitter. Feel free to suggest show topics, or if you're interested in recording one of the stories at the top of the podcast, we would be thrilled to arrange that, and I think we can through the magics of the internets. Yes.
1: Or through a Ouija Ouija board.
2: board. (laughs) If you're not alive. In which case... Do they have Twitter in the, in the after, In world. the summerland. Some
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Elysian fields. Yeah. So, same, we, we've talked about the Ouija board before. We're not like repeating stuff, are we already?
2: No, we're not repeating stuff. This. Okay, so the way that we all probably grew up thinking about the Ouija board, the terrifying oracle made by Parker Brothers mass-produced in fine quality cardboard is probably mostly influenced by the 1973 film
1: the exorcist
2: right so in that film or in the true story the boy and his aunt were using a spirit board before he was possessed of demons so that doesn't seem positive
1: right and that really is where it seems that negative association with ouija boards comes from
2: bad press Bad press.
1: But you know what? It wasn't the first bad press that Ouija boards ever had.
2: Do tell, sir.
1: Well, there are numerous, numerous crazy stories associated with Ouija boards, including one. In 1933, you had Miss Dorothea Irene Tully, and she was using a Ouija board with her daughter, Maddie. And as they were using the planchette. Uh, spelled on a message instructing Maddie to kill her father
2: her father you say
1: <sighs> and thereby freeing Darthea the mother to marry a young cowboy.
2: Well, I mean, I get it. I get it. If I were the Ouija board, I'd be like, go for the cowboy. But what do I know?
1: So, you know, what the mom said.
2: The Ouija board is silly and we probably shouldn't murder people.
1: The mom said the board cannot be denied.
2: What do I know about parenting?
1: So, you know what? Being a good, obedient daughter, she walked up behind her 48-year-old father and shot him twice in the back. And he died. How did
2: the Ouija defense hold up in court?
1: (laughs) You know, I'm not sure if she ran away with the cowboy or not.
2: Off into the sunset. So we're not doing that anymore. No more Ouija murders. That was an isolated incident back in 1933, and we've moved on with our lives, right? Uh,
1: of course not. There are a ton of them.
2: A ton of them what?
1: A ton of Ouija board-associated murders.
2: Murders.
1: Yes, and I'm cherry-picking a few good ones. In December 2007, two boys, Joshua Tucker, a 16-year-old, and a 15-year-old, Donald Shalakin, well, they asked the Ouija board if they should become serial killers. Then they asked who would be killed first, and the board spelled out, mom.
2: Not very specific. They both have mothers.
1: And so on the 9th December 19th, they were drinking alcohol and cough syrup, and while they were hanging out, one of their sisters came in and was talking out of the phone. So, Tucker took a knife and stabbed her in the throat.
2: That's not mom.
1: You're right. They then hid the body and tried to clean up, but then mom came home and was looking for the daughter. And Tucker attacked her as well, stabbed her, but his knife broke, so Donald gave him a dumbbell and a butcher's knife to finish off the job.
2: I mean, I feel like if you're asking, should we become serial killers, maybe you already want to? Mm-hmm. God, okay, so Ouija board makes people do terrible things.
1: No. Oh. Yeah, I don't think the Ouija board's making anybody do terrible things.
2: Wait, but you just said that they were using the Ouija board and then they did bad stuff. Are you telling me, sir, that there's a difference between correlation and causation?
1: I'm saying there's this weird thing called free will.
2: What? <laughs> Drop the mic.
1: But interestingly enough, this idea of the Ouija board being a portal for demonic entrance and evil is really not how it started at all.
2: But it sounds like it is a demonic portal. I don't know, like it's all dark and scary and ominous and stuff. But it's really not.
1: It's just a piece of cardboard with letters on it. And a little piece of plastic.
2: Who are people trying to talk to? Why would you have a Ouija board if you weren't actually trying to communicate with Satan?
1: So, the Ouija board has been around for a long time and it has its origins in spiritualism. But, am
2: I gonna to get to talk about spiritualism on this episode? Are you serious?
1: Uh, of course.
2: And and Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle maybe and 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 mediums maybe
1: okay and ectoplasm I love ectoplasm
2: oh I'm gonna oh it's gonna be like all Ghostbusters up in here let's go okay
1: (laughs) definitely we're going Ghostbusters on this but let's talk let's talk about where the Ouija board comes from so it originally came about in the late 1800s. So before the invention of our modern-day Ouija board, people were using things like this for centuries.
2: There were different methods of divining, and they're as varied as the cultures that they come from and the diviners who use them. I mean, there's cardomancy. there is tasiomancy. What are those things? Cardomancy is reading cards, which is still practiced today. The gypsy version of cardomancy uses a standard paris deck, which is what you would play poker with. There's also tarot reading, which uses tarot decks, that are derived from Italian folk lays that were done to portray the life of Christ, and it turned into a parlor game, uh, and then was later used for divining purposes. Now there are as many tarot decks as there are human beings, it seems.
1: And tasyamancy is that tea?
2: Yes, it's reading tea leaves. There's palm reading, palmistry, in which you look at the lines on your hands in order to get better sense of your character and future.
1: Those don't seem to be directly related to the Ouija board.
2: Right. Those are not made to communicate with dead people per se. The Ouija board is used to communicate with dead people. It is a tool of mediumship. It's a little bit different. It is still a divining tool predating the Ouija board. People were very interested in automatic writing, which was done by allowing a spirit to use your hands while you're in trance and make marks on paper that would somehow comport themselves into an intelligible mess of information and person would look at it have communication with their dead loved one or the spirit of whomever they were seeking to contact jesus angels
1: oh of course definitely
2: any anyone who was sitting around and felt like doing a little you know creative writing that day so in the beginning, people were using their hands, but that felt cumbersome and like the marks were not intelligible. So eventually they made something that looked a lot like the planchette that sits on the Ouija board. Some of them had wheels on the base that allow it to move in free-form motion, and it had one at each point, and it had a little pencil at the front, and they would let that glide over the paper, and it freed up their hands somewhat. So that was one form of automatic writing that kind of heralds the arrival of the Ouija board, kind of gives us some early inklings of what that might look like. There were also various other contrivances and means of communication. Some of them included just calling out the letters of the alphabet and waiting for a spirit to stop them by either making a noise, groaning, knocking on the walls. The spirit rap was a major thing, and that was long and tedious, as you can imagine. Anyone who's ever seen The Diving Bell and the Butterfly can imagine what that's like. People started just writing the letters of the alphabet down. Sometimes they'd turn highball glasses over or whatever and allow the glass to kind of shift over the table using the table's vibrations and let the spirits guide the glass and so that was something a lot of mediums used and a lot of people used at home to try and contact the dead, which apparently was all the rage.
1: Yeah, and so the brand new Associated Press reported on these talking boards used by spiritualists in Ohio. Some credit this as giving a man named Cunard the idea of producing the Ouija board. He was not a spiritualist.
2: Of course he wasn't. He was a
1: businessman. Of course he would. He and a few other investors... Including Elijah Bond, a local attorney, decided to make this talking board and sell it kind of as a novelty item, and they created the Canard Novelty Company.
2: So they used the rudimentary design of the spiritualists who were using this as part of their mediumistic communication slash religion slash act.
1: So the Ouija board, if you've not seen it and you've been under a rock, the alphabet is put out in alphabetic order in two crescent shapes over the board. There's also a linear line of numbers at the bottom and there are three words yes in the top left hand corner no in the top right hand corner and goodbye at the bottom under the numbers and this has looked the exact same since it was produced They've added a few cool suns and moons and things to it to make Those it a little Those have been more there mystical. a really
2: long time. You're though. right.
1: The original board had little stars because mm-hmm. it was made of wood and it had stars etched into it. So it's really not that far from the original. So they created this and then they had to name it.
2: Well, they didn't just create the board. They also created the planchette, which was on little felt tips. So it would slide over the wood more easily and it was triangularly shaped or teardrop shaped, with like a little viewing window.
1: Right. And so after they designed the board, they need to name it. And there are a lot of theories on where the name for this comes from. One very widely believed one is that it comes from two words we oui and ya. Ja. Yeah, Meaning yes. Yeah, and yes. that's
2: what I've read. Yes.
1: Yes. There's really not a clear answer on which one of these is right. At the time, people said, make good luck in Egyptian.
2: doesn't even sound like Egyptian. I don't know. know what Egyptian sounds like, but I don't think it sounds like that.
1: One prominent scholar that's researched this a lot says that its name is really has an odd origin and that Helen Peters, who was one of the investor's sisters-in-law, who said she was a medium, was using the board, but was also wearing a locket with a picture of a feminist named Ouida. Mm-hmm. And it said Ouida on the picture and thought that that's where the name Ouija comes from so some of the early advertisements were so great they would call it Ouija the wonderful talking board or call it interesting and mysterious or even said as proven at patent office before it was allowed
2: no that's just not true
1: yeah that sounds like some hucksterism but it is true
2: What do you mean it's true? So,
1: they actually went to take the Ouija board to the patent office to get a patent on it. Whenever they took it to the patent office, the patent office said, Okay, fine. You know, I'll give you a patent if you can show me that it actually works. I wanted to spell out my name. And so, Bond, who was an attorney at the time, probably knew his name. Also brought Helen Peters, the strong, medium sister-in-law, with him. And they had a little seance right there. A little Ouija board.
2: In the patent office.
1: Right in the patent office. And Uh it spelled out his name.
2: That's mystifying.
1: And he said, all right, here's your patent. And the interesting thing is the patent did not give any explanation on how it works. It just said that it did. But that added to the air of mystery. It added to being able to advertise with that information. It sold really well. And interestingly enough, it kept spikes in its sales. We're always kind of in times of strife. So the Ouija board was really popular when it came out, but then another surge after World War One, and then at other times where there was always just lots of problems in the country. And people always say, you know, there's times when people were trying to communicate with the dead, communicate with their loved ones. Like we were saying earlier, this was not thought of as an evil thing. People were not thinking they were talking to demons. Yeah, it was just normal to talk to dead loved ones. But, you know, eventually it was sold to Parker Brothers. One year it even sold 2 million copies. Copies, outselling Monopoly. But there are a lot of weird stories associated with the Ouija board. One of my favorites is a lot of people published books and poems and stories that they said were given to them using the Ouija board.
2: That requires so much patience.
1: One of these people, Pearl Curran, published as Patience Worth.
2: It's Worth the Patience? Really? <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Okay. And she
1: said she was channeling a 17th century English woman. And she published in made tons of money and her friend later wrote a book called Jap Huron mm-hmm. and she said she wrote channeling good old Samuel Clemens
2: Samuel Langhorn Clemens you say for those of you who don't know first of all shame on you and second of all that's Mark Twain and that's interesting to me because Mark Twain was actually one of the early members of the Society for Psychical Research which we'll be discussing later in the show Twain believed that he had been visited by the spirit of his brother after he died in a steamboat accident before receiving news of said brother's death. And it always perplexed him and caused him a great deal of emotional stress, and he wanted answers.
1: See, in this time period, in the mid to late 1800s, is really when the spiritualist movement came about.
2: Really began in the 1840s. So if you look at what happens to perpetuate it, you've got the Civil War, and then it continues until about 1930. And in that time, you also have World War One. So the world is sort of in mourning. You also have... It influenza and tuberculosis wreaking havoc, new technologies that are not yet perfected, such as steamboats and railroads that are causing a lot of deaths and accidents, automobile accidents.
1: I think it is important with all of that, this was a huge time of change in technology as well. Science was budding. People were starting to figure out modern medicine. People were starting to understand the world around them. There were just amazing new scientific discoveries, seemingly, every day.
2: Right. And so the world's system of belief was being challenged in really fundamental ways with theories like evolution. When Darwin proffered theory of evolution to the public, people were shocked. This threw everything out of orbit. This is the most out of orbit people have been since Galileo. You know, he
1: proved a different orbit. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. So Darwin comes and says, men evolved. And people say, but God. And God... Darwin says, sorry, men evolved. People say, but God. And there's this huge crisis of belief at this time, too. There are technological advances, surely. People are receiving telegrams.
1: If someone could send a telegram across the ocean and communicate, why couldn't spirits communicate from the other side?
2: It seems a natural leap in logic. Think about how much people's beliefs are challenged daily. But spiritualism
1: is such an interesting thing, and I didn't realize, I know you know a lot about it, and I didn't realize until speaking to you that it was really thought of as a religion.
2: At its height, it had around 8 million followers, yeah.
1: Where did this all come from?
2: It's a long and winding road. The tenets of spiritualism are that you are able to communicate with the dead and that God's not such a bad guy. He's kind of nice and tolerant. And people believe that Paul, who mentions the spiritual gifts, this is something that Lorraine Warren talks about all the time. Let's just mention her for good measure. Lorraine Warren constantly talks about how her gift of mediumship is the gift of spiritual discernment as discussed by paul in the bible and that's the ability to understand and discern different spirits
1: yeah i think that's really interesting because at the time it was a very christian country as people try to say now people were able to blend this in with their christian beliefs without there being anything wrong with it
2: friends anton mesmer oh Oh, you? You're raising your hands? is. You're raising your hand? Okay. Tell me about friends and John Mesmer. Uh,
1: okay, I know this, because he was a healer.
2: Oh, was he now?
1: He was.
2: I'm smelling snake oil. I mean, it's coming off you strong.
1: Yeah, I love this stuff. And so he said that everything in the universe was governed by magnetic fluids, and that these magnetic fluids can become imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Does the imbalance of fluids sound familiar to you at oh, all? Oh,
2: yeah, like the humors.
1: Exactly. He just ripped off the Greeks.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: and their humors, So, of those who don't know, there were several humors in the body and they'd become imbalanced and that's how you'd fix things, by bleeding, by fixing imbalances. But he claimed that he would heal people by fixing their magnetic fluids. So he would wave his hands over somebody and put them in a... Mesmerized
2: state. Oh my goodness, my little etymology beacon just lit up with th- fury. That's
1: right, this is where the term mesmerized comes from.
2: Mesmer, mesmerized. Okay. And
1: so he would manipulate magnetic forces and heal people.
2: Yay, placebos. So, what does he contribute to spiritualism?
1: So, his hypnotic states he would put people in were combined with this other guy's ideas.
2: Svithenberg, 18th century Swedish philosopher. He was sort of a reformist and kind of had some weird theories about afterlife. He believed that there were three heavens and three hells and an interim destination, the world of the spirits, where everyone went exactly after they died. That place was very similar to Earth. I think, like Beetlejuice, like the lobby in Beetlejuice. Excessive self-love or self-importance would drive you to a specific circle of hell i mean kind of dante i'm thinking
1: yeah you can definitely see the influence for sure
2: he was kind of all about god being like buddy jesus too like he was like god doesn't send anyone to hell but you can send yourself to hell and then he also like believed that he could go into a trance while waking and maybe communicate with spirits a little Of course
1: where all this kind of comes together is our good friend andrew jackson david old hickory no 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 i'm sure that's where the name comes from a different guy.
2: Called an alligator and he powdered his behind? That guy? No. Okay. Not a different guy.
1: This guy was actually called John the Baptist of American Spiritualism.
2: Fancy title.
1: So he kind of combined all of these ideas. And he says he was in a mesmeric trance. And while he was in this trance, he spoke to Swedenborg.
2: Okay, so... He was dead
1: at the time. Well, it was about 75 years later. He then wrote a big book putting out the tenets of your American Spiritualism. And in it, he said that the spirits commune with one another while one is in the body and the other in the higher spheres all the world will hail with delight the ushering in of that era where the interiors of men will be opened and the spiritual communion will be established he was prophesying that this new spiritual awakening would come about and we'd be able to communicate with the dead. When this came out, he was not exactly hailed as the new Jesus. Where he really started to get his fame when he combined his fame with the Fox sisters. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, he, So he saw the Fox sisters as his prophecy coming true. Oh
2: my goodness.
1: So, Sam, I know you know about the Fox sisters.
2: So there were these wholesome farm girls named Maggie and Katie Foss. And they began playing pranks on people in their hometown. And they moved into this old house, and they... Knew there was a rumor that someone had gone into that house and not come out. There were rumors already that the house was haunted. So they claimed to be communicating with a dead man via knocks on the walls. And they really spooked people. They would communicate with him and get answers that seemed impossible about the neighbors. He was giving them all sorts of information. And he kind of acted as their spirit guide.
1: So what did the family do and heard about this?
2: They moved, and they sent the sisters to live with their older sister, Leah. Leah then began to publicize the sisters' gift. And they could demonstrate their abilities with incredible precision and pretty much on demand. They would use the method that I talked about earlier with the alphabet. They would spell out words and get spirit raps, knocking sounds, when they got to the right letter.
1: And so they would be like, A, B, C... C, okay, C, A, B, C, D, E, C, E, A, B. Yes,
2: that's what they do.
1: That sounds entertaining.
2: Yeah, right, (laughs) and they did it for audiences, so it should have been. Well, the girls were eventually carted away to P.T. Barnum's American Museum in New York City, and they held audience with some really famous, well-to-do people who were very impressed with their talents.
1: One of the people I love that was there was James Finmore Cooper,
2: who wrote *Last of the Mohicans*. He was totally freaked out. He never went back to a medium, and like found the whole experience very spooky and was quite unsettled by it.
1: And to those that don't know about Barnum's Museum,
2: Barnum's Museum was like the biggest dime museum on earth. It housed oddities and. Freaks, as they were called at the time. Performers who exhibited strange physical characteristics, um, like Tom Thumb, uh, who was about two feet tall, or a bearded lady named Josephine, or entire tribes imported from Africa to demonstrate their savagery, or artifacts like the Fiji Mermaid, the mysterious mermaid that confounds Darwin's theories.
1: Which was just a dead monkey and a dead fish sewn together. Carefully. Very, right. It was well done. Well done. You could Google that. But this is Barnum of...
2: The Circus. Yeah,
1: Ringling Brothers and Barnum and of the Circus. And so it is not a stretch to say that they were world famous.
2: No, they were definitely world famous, or at least the English-speaking world. Yeah, they, they were very well known, and they were very young at the time when all this started. And that was another element of credibility that they had, because they were guileless children, right? They were just these sweet innocents who were... Young
1: maids communicating with the spirit world.
2: Yeah, with their dark eyes and their dark hair and dark clothing. You're
1: right. Like they started really young and this did take their toll on them to where eventually Maggie quit. She got married, converted to Catholicism and quit. <laughs> but Katie continued but she developed a really bad drinking problem.
2: Yeah.
1: I had a lot of ridicule from the rest of the community because of this.
2: Right. They were they definitely fell from grace and they fell loudly and with flair.
1: Yeah, and Maggie was not too excited about how everyone was treating her poor sister.
2: No. And so, in one fell swoop, she undid all of the credibility that the sisters had accrued over their years of reading for the public. She went to the New York world and confessed that she and her sister Katie had been faking their powers for years. And for revealing this information, she was paid... $1,500. Nice. Nice.
1: That was right before she had a presentation at the New York Academy of Music.
2: And at that presentation, she revealed exactly how she and Katie had been duping the public. The sisters had apparently either manufactured or been born with the ability to pop their joints quite loudly and without detection. She, Whoa,
1: right. Cool human party trick.
2: They'd been <laughs> popping their toes to get those spirit wraps that came from nowhere.
1: There's a great quote from the New York Herald from at the time. There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow. Her husband died, by the way. Working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way she created the excitement. That had driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment, it was ludicrous. The next, it was weird.
2: So they didn't just, like, stick with that story either. After it was revealed to the public that they'd been faking it about a year later, Maggie was like, no, I faked faking it. Just kidding. And no one really cared. And then she actually adopted a pseudonym, Mrs. Spencer, and continued to go around revealing tricks of the trade.
1: The one interesting point is about that spirit. They said there was their spirit guide. You know, they did actually find a dead body years later in that house.
2: Right, under the floorboards or something down in the basement. Buried, skeletal remains in the house.
1: Mysterious. It is
2: mysterious. You have to wonder.
1: Andrew Jackson, David. We have the Fox sisters. Mm -hmm. And we have thousands of mediums, I would say.
2: Probably, yeah. And, the entire and, communities were founded as resorts for some spiritualists, but hometowns for others. There was a town called Lilydale in the U.S. that was founded to be a spiritualist retreat, and re- the entire town was made up of people who believe they talked to the dead. So, yes. There a were ghost pro- town? N- t- yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there were millions there in the spiritualist movement.
2: Eight million and, at the
1: time. And one of the great evangelists for the spiritualist movement was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle.
2: I feel like I've heard his name before.
1: Well, it's elementary, my dear Watson.
2: Okay, yes, that Arthur Conan Doyle. I was thinking of another Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, is one of the most well-known figureheads of the spiritualist movement. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is one of the more well-known figureheads of the spiritualist movement. He began to become interested in spiritualism after he lost several nephews and a son in World War One. Like a lot of people at the time was really feeling lost, I think and totally lost 11 family members during the war. And he also married a woman, it was his second marriage, named Jean, who claimed to be a medium who specialized in automatic writing. And Through her and her circles, he was able to contact the son that he lost named Kingsley and felt connected to him again. Now, Doyle spent a lot of time with his wife in trance writing for him and communicating with those on the other side, and he eventually found a spirit guide. It was a spirit named Phineas, and Phineas gave him so much information, but most of it had to do with the war that was coming between the spiritualist and everyone else in which the spiritualist movement would become the most pervasive religion in the world and that he had a great responsibility to aid the cause and be on the front lines when this conflict came to pass. The funny thing about Phineas is he sounds a lot like jean's private desires and thoughts uh, that she records during this time very interesting it is the ultimate passive aggression to tell your husband no no honey you can't do that phineas won't like it <laughs> i'm going to assign you a spirit guide and he's going to tell you to do all sorts of things doyle is very very deep in this he stops writing sherlock holmes for those of you who've ever wondered why he stopped doing that. This is why he believed he needed to dedicate all of his time and energy to this pursuit.
1: Spoiler alert. He doesn't die from dropping off the waterfall.
2: In his efforts to further the movement, he travels the U.K. and the U.S. giving lectures about spiritualism and offering proof to anyone who's in attendance. This usually takes the form of spirit photos, testimony, sometimes demonstrations. But he's a very persuasive figure, and he has a lot of credibility. I mean, he's a knight, for God's sake.
1: Yeah, an interesting thing is that he was a doctor. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a very good doctor. No. (laughs) But even, you know, Sherlock Holmes is based on one of his professors. I find that interesting that he is what one would consider a man of science.
2: Yes, and he's been completely converted to this. And another thing that drew a lot of people into his story, allowed a lot of people to share his conviction, was the fact that he had written this character that was all about data and logic and reason. And they believed that his mind had to mirror that of Holmes. And that if Sherlock Holmes, the man who couldn't be conned and couldn't be fooled, was taken in by spiritualism, there had to be something to it.
1: Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was extremely popular at that time. It's not one of those Sherlock Holmes did not become popular posthumously or anything like that.
2: No, it was published in serial form, so people were always clamoring for the next installment. It was it was in its heyday even then.
1: So everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew who Sherlock Holmes was. And he had a lot of really well-known friends, too.
2: Oh. Do I get to talk about it now? Since seventh grade, I have been mildly mm-hmm. to moderately obsessed with Heinrich Weiss. Who's that, you ask? That's Harry Houdini. I love Harry Houdini. I think he's fabulous. I have read biographies and biographies. He's one of the most interesting human beings who's ever lived. I will fight you if you say I'm wrong. Now, he and Arthur Conan Doyle started out as great friends because Houdini had always had an interest in spiritualism and in mediums. So the two sort of started out as brothers in arms um, and they would get together and talk about life after death and ghosts. They both very much hoped And... I mean, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't hope, he believed that there were real mediums out there who were just yet to be found, genuine mediums who could offer communication with the other side. So whenever Houdini would visit England or Scotland, he would meet up with Conan Doyle and they would tour around going to visit mediums that Doyle believed to be credible. Houdini would sit with them, observe what they did, and report whether or not he shared Conan Doyle's belief. Harry Houdini was uniquely suited to to make these assessments, you probably know him as an escape artist and stage magician, and indeed, that's true. He was probably the greatest one of either of those things to ever live. In addition to that, before he had allowance to pursue those art forms, he was performing on the vaudeville circuit... As a medium. no. you may say to yourself, I didn't know Harry Houdini was psychic. Well, that's the beauty of the thing. He wasn't. He was just good at putting on a show.
1: He never claimed to be psychic.
2: No, he emphatically denied that he was. Before he would put on his show, he and Bess would peruse the local graveyard, taking down names. He would pay off town gossips to tell him all the goings-on of the people in the town. He would read newspapers from that area. He would do everything in his power to collect all the information he could before he got on stage and then he would combine all of the information he'd gathered with all of the illusions that he was trained to do and convince the audience that he was in fact communicating with their dead relatives. Now the moment Harry Houdini got his big break and was signed to a permanent contract in a theater, he first of all said never again will I do the medium thing. Now his wife Bess was very helpful with the medium show and at this point she's kind of pushed out of the act. But he says never again will I do that. And he also asked for one week's pay in gold coins. He goes to his mother and looses the coins in her apron. And she cries because he's fulfilled his father's dying prophecy one day you'll fill your mother's apron with gold. And Houdini kind of believed that that was the spiritual magic, that we made that magic between people. We could fulfill prophecies, but we had to knowingly do it. And he brought that skepticism in. That story is also important because his love for his mother is what drove this quest to find a real medium after his mother passed away he was in deep mourning for a long period of time
1: so he was a good jewish
2: boy he was a good jewish boy his father was a rabbi he had to be a good jewish boy he had no options but yes after his mother passed away he'd wanted to communicate with his father for years and been unable to but mother who lived in the home with him and Bess, who saw him off on every trip he made
1: so after she dies he's wants to seek out a real medium
2: and he believes there is such a thing, but he knows that there are more frauds than real mediums. Does he
1: believe or does he want to believe?
2: He's very Fox Mulder. So, in earnest, he and Conan Doyle begin seeking out a real medium together. Now, I think Doyle's holding back the big guns, which would be Gene, until one weekend the two couples go to Atlantic City to spend a weekend and... After sitting with Bess and asking lots of questions about Houdini's mother, Jean's like, hey, you should just try me. I'm an awesome medium. Houdini's like, cool. So she does some automatic writing for him and gives him like eight pages of automatic writing supposedly from Mama Weiss. He seems very affected by the whole thing at the time. Conan Doyle says he's weeping and very pleased and altogether just blown away with Jean's ability and thinks he's completely sold. Now, weeks later, Houdini sort of undoes the magic of that moment when he tells the press that he's not yet seen any medium who seems to be supernatural or who couldn't produce their phenomena by their own intellect or means.
1: Oh, right, so I'm sure this went over really well with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle.
2: Like the proverbial turd in the punch bowl this yeah. went over. It did not go over well at all. This
1: is where the beef starts.
2: There are some very strongly worded letters that fly back and forth between the two men. Were, one, there, were there
1: fisticuffs?
2: There were not fisticuffs. I want um, them to
1: have, like, handlebar mustaches, shirts off, and fisticuffs.
2: Okay, so there are lots of pictures with... Conan Doyle where he has a handlebar mustache and lots of pictures of Houdini where he has a shirt off, so I'm sure this could be arranged. We can photoshop them. No, they were just strongly worded letters. At one point, Houdini accuses Conan Doyle of not being a manly man. As he's presented himself, it's it's it was a, fighting words. Yeah, not being good a good honorable manly man. Their, their friendship sours. It's funny that it sours to me because throughout their tight times, throughout the times where they were really good friends, Houdini maintained that most mediumship was trickery. everything he'd ever seen, he even produced a phenomena for Conan Doyle in which he used a tablet and a ball suspended from the air to do spirit writing totally blew Conan Doyle away wrote something he's like you could not have known that that's so secret and hidden and he's like it's mere trickery one of the tricks that the Fox sisters used was
1: doing writing on slates with chalk between their toes They were very dexterous with their feet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's all about the feet. If you get the feet thing down, you can be a medium. He did it in the full light of his study. It was the greatest miracle Conan Doyle had ever seen. He's like, I assure you, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's trickery. And he did a similar thing while he was on a ship, and he bumped into... Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt bumps into him, and he says... Come, Houdini, how about a little seance?
1: How do you turn Teddy Roosevelt down? Another great mustache. Another
2: great mustachioed man. Well, he was just returning from his trip to the River of Darkness in Africa, and he asked the question at the seance, where did I spend this Christmas? And Houdini revealed a slate with a carefully drawn map of the area that was perfectly accurate and scrawled in a hand very different from his own. And... Did he do it with his toes? I don't know. Nobody knows. That's the great thing about Houdini. It's interesting. Here's where they they go
1: on very separate paths. So Arthur Conan Doyle goes on his evangelistic crusade. It is a crusade. He was Billy Gramming this. He was going to get everyone in the English-speaking world to buy into spiritualism.
2: Yes, because he had proof. One of my favorite stories about his his crusade is that his proof, the fairy photos that are so famous, turned out to be illustrations from a book that one of his own stories appeared in that children had cut out and put around them. And he endorsed it as being real.
1: And then Houdini went the other way. Oh yeah. He crusaded to completely disprove every medium. So before we get into what he did, let's talk about what these mediums were doing. Like you just mentioned this kind of photography and spirit photography was a big thing. Cause we talked about this new science photography was a new thing and you can look at some great photos there's a really good book called spook by mary roach and it's a lot about this they talk about how they faked a lot of spirit photos and ectoplasm Mm -hmm. so we're talking about like a ghostbusters or Slimer goes through you you know this would be photos and you'd see ectoplasm coming out of people's mouths and, and this was spirit energy but it was just you know cotton wadding things like that that they just would take pictures of and they would do double exposures of film to where it would look like a spirit was present, but they were just taking two pictures at a time.
2: Right, and this is at a time when photos were thought to represent reality. No one was photoshopping in the minds of the public. If it's on film, it has to be true. Later, we get the, like, oh, what, did you hear that on TV kind of attitude? Like, oh, well, have you heard it on TV, it has to be true. Or, oh, did you read that on the internet? This was the, oh, you saw it in a picture? It must be true. And we talked about
1: automatic writing. Mm-hmm. About the spirit thump.
2: That was a loud spirit thump.
1: And we talk. wait. That was you. No. Okay. Was it you? No. <gasps> oh, ghosties. Spirits like our podcast, um, or don't?
2: Or <laughs> they really don't.
1: <laughs> um, and you had table tilting.
2: Table tilting was a big. I can understand, like, why would anyone go after these mediums? They're just trying to, like, picturing a gypsy or, like, Jonathan Edwards or whatever. No, these people were putting on full-scale productions. Table tilting was part of what's called physical mediumship and it was believed that the spirits would interact with physical objects in the room table tilting was accomplished by people sitting around a table with their fingers under it and allowing the spirits to use their energy to tilt the table one way for yes and another way for no that was one form of physical mediumship but that was only the smallest part in these productions people would travel around on the vaudeville circuit conducting shows as mediums they would put a spirit cabinet, which is like just a little cell, on a stage, enter the stage, darken the room, have everyone in attendance sing hymns loudly, and then produce all manner of phenomena, ranging from sounds to musical instruments that appear to float in the air and play themselves, to full-body apparitions, which look suspiciously like people with sheets over their heads. Hey. Yes that's where that image of a ghost comes from that's why that's a ghost costume I never understood it these spirits would go up to people in the audience and kiss them they would produce flowers they would produce birds they would produce
1: people would feel hands on them
2: Mm, Yes, and it was impossible for the mediums to be doing it you see because they were bound in the spirit cabinet no one saw them come out in the dark or heard the door open while they were singing it was all very scientific this mediumship and people bought It hook, line, and sinker. Because they wanted to. Because they wanted to. So what did Houdini do about all this? Well... He's a pretty pretty smart guy. Where to start? Okay, so Houdini organized a sort of secret service of his own and sent them out to towns that he would be touring through ahead of him. His little organization was mainly comprised of women um, who would go and sit with mediums. They would usually pose as a young, wealthy widow who had lost her husband to an accident or during war and offer them grand sums of money to contact their lost husband. They just didn't know what to do with all this money they had. So they would go and they would observe what the women did and they would report back to Houdini if they believed that there was trickery involved. Now Houdini said if the mediums appear to genuinely believe in what they're doing and they're not charging exorbitant sums and they don't appear to be taking a advantage of those that come to see them or if they're offering genuine solace, don't mess with them. But if they're charlatans, write their names down. So he had these agents out and they would report to this aspiring magician that Houdini had sent to barber school.
1: Learn the magic of a good haircut.
2: Yes. Houdini bought a storefront near his home in New York and turned it into a barber shop that was only open to him. And this guy would pose as a barber and he would give him a daily shave and cut his Hair And during the time that he was visiting the magician, the two would discuss their secret business in a place where they would not draw attention for the regular meeting and in a place where they didn't have to worry about being interrupted. Talk about
1: serious commitment.
2: So after the women in the organization collected the names and this guy reported to Houdini of the names that had been collected... When Houdini visited the town, he would go in disguise to one of the medium's performances. Now, the disguise was usually that of an elderly old man. He'd walk with a cane, he'd wear a wig, sometimes a beard, glasses, etc. And he would shuffle into the crowd and take a seat. And mid-performance, he would get the lights on, expose the medium, reveal himself, and then call in the cops who were waiting in the wings, and they would come and arrest the medium for fraudulent claims. It's all very cloak and dagger.
1: Yeah, such a good... He even had showmanship in this.
2: Oh, well, he made a show of it. Yeah,
1: I'm sure he... Threw off the disguise in a grand flourish. Said, For I am Harry Houdini, and you are a fraud.
2: <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's a direct quote from the book I read. So Houdini was all about disguise and showmanship, and he even did shows in which he would reveal medium's more common secrets and tricks. But in addition to this Secret Service investigation he did, he went to Washington to argue before Congress that fortune telling should be outlawed.
1: Yeah, so Houdini did some great stuff. Besides his amazing magic and uh, escape artistry. So there's another organization that's great. has a great name. Mm -hmm. And it's the Society for Psychical Research. This really relates to what we were talking about earlier. Where people didn't know if this was real or not. You know, all these new discoveries were happening. Was it that much of a stretch that this was real? And so this organization was originally found in the UK. Came over to America. And it was looking to have true science scientific inquiry into psychical phenomena such as telepathy, mediums, hauntings, all of these kind of things. They were the ghost hunters of the day.
2: Bro. Bro. Are you
1: serious? Bro. And they were all scientists, and they all conducted research in very empirical ways. And the American chapter, which was out of Harvard and Boston, one of the leaders was the great psychologist, who is still read today,
2: William James. Yes, William James was very fascinated by all these goings on, and he prided himself on keeping an open mind. James' father was a big endorser of Swedenborg and was very interested in life after death and religion and stuff and William became curious
1: yeah so William was very curious on this stuff he wanted to prove or disprove it he was not like Houdini who was out to take all these charlatans down
2: well even Houdini wanted it to be
1: real I think yeah you're right you're right you're right but William James was like took it in a very scientific way mm-hmm. he was like we're gonna use a scientific method and either prove or disprove this hypothesis
2: yes which seems perfectly rational to me interestingly enough though william james may have been one of the biggest believers in psychical phenomena but he's also responsible for popularizing one of the major theories that debunks things like the ouija board
1: yeah so the ouija board and a lot of other things that are used in divining like divining rods and pendulums, is something called the idiomotor effect. So this was actually discovered before the existence of the Ouija board. It was originally described in 1852 by William Benjamin Carpenter, and he presented it as these reflexive actions, very minuscule of the muscles, and it could be kind of a response to thoughts or feelings. And even Faraday of the Faraday Cage, who's a very early and important physicist, he did a lot of research into this, proving that table turning was caused by the. ideomotor effects. So something where you're not even consciously thinking about it, but these small muscle movements are doing what your subconscious is thinking. William James really popularized this in 1890 with his book, Principles of Psychology, where he discussed it. And this has also been tied in with, uh, you know, Freud's ideas of the subconscious.
2: Everything leads back to Freud, right? Everything
1: leads to Freud and the mother. And so this has been known about for a very, very, very long time. But there have been some really interesting new research to take us back to the present day for just a moment.
2: What? No. Sorry.
1: We'll go back. I'm t- I promise. I know you love Victorian and turn of the century stuff. Yeah. We'll go back. At the University of British Columbia, the Visual Cognition Lab, they were doing research on idiomotor movements and looking at its relationship to the unconscious kind of control. And they were looking to see if can even express non-conscious knowledge by using something like a Ouija board. So they actually did use a Ouija board in this research. Huh. And they took a group of people.
2: And, and- they all all got eaten by demons. No demons. Not oh. At all. No,
1: this is Vancouver.
2: Oh, there are no demons I've been here. It's yeah. very pretty, pretty
1: <laughs> campus. So, they took a group of people and they asked them questions. They're all very generalized yes or no questions. Something like, did the 2000 Olympics take place in Sydney? Stuff that most people would probably be able to say yes or no to. And they asked people the questions verbally. Mm-hmm. And on average, people got about half of them right. But then, they would sit people down with a Ouija board. And they would have an another participant there, but that guy was in on it and they would be blindfolded. The person that was in on it would step away, take their hands off the planchette. Whenever that happened, the person that had their hands on the planchette was asked those questions and they through idiomotor movements move the planchette to yes or no. And they got 65% of the answers right.
2: Seems a significant increase. So
1: there's a scientifically significant increase in the amount of answers you got right just through using your kind of subconscious knowledge and using your idiomotor movements.
2: Well, how do they know the spirits weren't answering these questions, Jacob?
1: You're right. It's completely debunked. <laughs>
2: Besides, it says on the directions from Parker Brothers: "Never play Ouija alone."
1: Yeah, there was also an ad that said,
2: "Funny how a boy makes the best partner."
1: No, we should play some Ouija boy later. No, but it was interesting because participants did not know that they were by themselves doing it. Uh huh. They did not believe they were alone. They did not know the other players took their hands off. And they often reported feeling like someone else was there moving it with them.
2: Well, they were. They were the spirits. Right, right, the spirits. I like how you're like, pretending like science matters.
1: William James. Ugh. Silly scientist.
2: Silly scientist. This interest that continued to be generated by the society that William James had been one of the leaders of led to further scientific inquiry. And when you're gathering a team, to do very specified research, you're going to need an expert.
1: So who would you call for that?
2: Ghostbusters. No, but if you need an expert in medium fraud tactics, you call Houdini. And that's exactly what they needed because the Scientific American was offering a $2,500 cash prize to anyone who could produce physical evidence of psychic phenomena through mediumship. That's big money. This is big money. This is like 1922. So every medium lined up. No, actually they didn't. It was very hard for them to get people to come forward because they were sure that the spirits wouldn't like it if they came forward. Our people would figure out that they were complete frauds. Which happened several times. There was one medium who was like the flower medium. And she would produce writing on cards using the ink from flowers. If you tested it or whatever, it would come back that it was rose hips made that word appear or whatever was her claim. And she liked to work in nature and blah, blah, blah. And she had like six blank sittings for the men. And she's like, I just need to be in nature. And so the men all went out and took her into nature, into a park in New York. And she went into nature and came back with the results but she had also borrowed one of the men's coats because it was chilly that morning, and he saw her slipping pre-made cards into the sleeve of the jacket.
1: Is this when Houdini throws
2: his clothes off? Charlatan! No, he wasn't there. Oh. He didn't need to be there. No one believed her anyway. But Houdini was one of the judges. He was one of the judges. And he was there for some of the more intense sittings. But because of his touring schedule, he wasn't expected to be there for all of them. So only the ones that were taken very serious.
1: So who got closest to winning this
2: prize? That would be Marjorie, the Boston Society medium. She was a non-professional medium. because She didn't need the money, you see. She was a lady of means and very pretty. She was married to a man named Dr. Cranston and he was a surgeon in Boston and he married this pretty young woman and he became interested in spiritualism and on a lark he and some friends decided to construct a seance table and they were getting really impressive results the first time they took it out and so they decided to see who the medium was among them and in turn each of the members of the party left the room to see if the activity stopped and when pretty blonde Marjorie stepped out of the room the activity ceased and she opened the door to find them applauding her. She must be the medium. They're all like, you're a medium. She's like, I guess I must be. So over time, she hones her powers and she finds her spirit guide and it's her deceased brother. And His name is Walter and Walter died in a railroad accident. Walter comes through for Marjorie and he begins to hold court in these seances and he directs all the activity and attention and everything else. Now Marjorie is impressive. She can join dream- drink water while Walter continues to speak. She makes flowers appear. She makes phantom birds appear. Eventually, she even produces ectoplasmic hands. So the men are very interested, and they want to know what's going on. By the time that the Scientific American Committee is involved, she's got quite a reputation, and she seems very credible because she's not taking money for her mediumship, which is something that they assumed that all the other mediums were motivated by so they come in they sit with her a couple of times they buy in completely and so they finally call in the Ghostbuster they call in Harry Houdini and he sits with her once and says no not impressed and they say oh but why I I can tell you how she did every single thing so they go back in and do another sitting and she has a spirit trumpet which is like a megaphone her hands are controlled her feet are controlled Walter says in his deep male voice which is another reason they assumed it couldn't have been Marjorie so in the dark she says Houdini I've picked up the trumpet where do you want me to throw it and he says at me and while her hands and feet are controlled the thing flies across the room and he walks out he's like that's the only thing I can't figure out how she did and then he says oh, I know I know she put it on her head it's like during one of the times she dropped a hand she picked the trumpet up and she put it on her head and she used her head to throw it across the room and at that point, he is done with Marjorie. He doesn't want to see her anymore. He thinks that it's just silly. And he sours on her completely, but the men from the Scientific American are still very interested for various reasons. Marjorie was a very pretty woman, and she also apparently had quite a way with men. And the Scientific American Inquiry Committee was made up of Men. Men. So in turn, she was rumored to be having affairs with pretty much all of them. So she was using her powers. Of persuasion very cunningly. And I'm
1: guessing she was showing them how she produced ectoplasm.
2: Okay, so after Houdini extricated himself from the inquiry, shit got real. Marjorie began attending seances in her kimono and stockings only. Scandalous. It is. This is 1920 something. Like,
1: scandals now.
2: Yeah, I mean, imagine these men are sitting down with their pads of paper to take notes on this happening, and the only woman in the room walks in wearing a silk robe and stockings. I think some eyebrows go up. Maybe it's just me. So she's sitting there, and she says that she needs to be dressed this way so that she can produce her ectoplasm.
1: So where is this ectoplasm coming from? Where she has to be so scantily clad. Well,
2: it comes from her vagina.
1: Did she have gonorrhea?
2: It's... No, it's much more substantial than that. So as her mediumship grows and improves, she begins producing specimens that look more like what the men in Scientific American are hoping to see. From a vagina. From a vagina. She's producing things that look like hands. She's making bloody flesh appear.
1: And all of this is coming from her... Vagina. So I think it's pretty safe to assume she was hiding bloody entrails in her vagina.
2: Yeah they later spoke to a butcher who supplied some of the items
1: so she was really tricky
2: she was a clever (laughs) fox.
1: so i'm guessing that she was not awarded the prize even though she diddled a few of the scientists
2: she was not awarded the prize and she was bitter about it till the day she died a man came to interview her about it very late in her life just tell us how you did it marjorie just tell us how you did it and she's like kind of mumbles something, and it seems like she's confessing, and he's like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to speak up. And she said, I said you could all go to hell. Classy dame. Love it.
1: So no one won the prize. No one won the prize. So all the powers of Scientific American, the Psychical Research Group, Harry Houdini, William James, no one was able to produce a credible medium. No. But one thing I think is really interesting, and this is a story that is really in the Houdini mythos, Is that he and his wife had a pact about when they died.
2: Yes, he and Bess, his loyal wife, had a pact that whoever died first would try to contact the other using a secret code that no one knew except them.
1: And this code was based on their old vaudeville act.
2: They used different words that would be commonly spoken during an improvised act to spell out important words that they needed to relay to the audience in order to make them believe that they knew what the spirits were saying.
1: And so Bess loyally did this every year after Houdini died for 10 years so she continued to do this for several years
2: yes well she did it I think for about three years and then something miraculous happened
1: did it involve ectoplasm
2: oh God I have not no she got the response she was looking for using this code and lines from a song that she used to sing in the vaudeville act that Houdini had had it engraved on her wedding band and she went to the press and was like it's all happened it's all come true he's contacted me shortly after declaring to the, all the papers that Houdini had come through giving her the secret code, she confessed that she was in collusion with the medium who produced the message, She happened to be a dashing young man and there are a lot of reports that Bess had a weakness for dashing young men and even kept a few of them around she then told papers that there was a time when she really wanted to hear from Houdini and then went on to say that she believed that she was very physically and mentally ill during that time and that she never thought he was going to come through, that she kind of made believe but she kept doing it for 10 years after his death and then finally went and turned off the light above his portrait in the study and said that's enough so, you have to wonder if Bess's heart was really in it. You know, she pulled the stunt with a medium right before she was supposed to go out and give a lecture tour. So, the publicity would have really benefited her. And, like, it's just. But I think it's
1: interesting that Houdini spent so much time and effort disproving all of this spiritualism and all these sham mediums. Yeah, he still wanted to believe. He still held out hope.
2: Well, sometimes you don't want to believe it's just a story.